So as I, as I said, we are continuing our study through the book of James. This is our second uh, look at the book of James. Last week we looked at chapter 1 and we went from verse 1 up to verse 18. This week we're looking at verses 19 through 27. So if you're turning uh, in your Bible, you'll see Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Uh, if you're using one of the blue Bibles nearby, it's going to be on page 111. Always encourage you uh, to bring your Bible, to be looking at your Bible, whether it's a physical Bible or a digital Bible, just so you can see where we're going with the text. We try to make sure that we are grounding everything that we're doing in the text, so it's just always helpful for you to have a copy of the scriptures in front of you. But to help you understand where we are, I want to give some context. Uh, James, this book, was written by Jesus' half-brother, James, and he was known uh, historically as James the Just. James the Just. Now, it was written around the mid-40s, and James was a leader in the Jerusalem church, the church in Jerusalem, and it had been scattered, and it was dispersed or scattered because of a lot of persecution that they were facing for their faith in Jesus. And so what James was doing, who James previously, as we talked about last week, was a doubter. He doubted that Jesus was the Son of God, and later he became a strong follower of Jesus, so much so that he was a leader in the church, and he was eventually martyred for his faith. And now James is writing to these dispersed Christians, these Christians who are under, undergoing persecution, and he's encouraging them to live out their faith. The whole book of James, if you just go through it, you can see it focuses on the relationship between faith and works. I grew up playing baseball. I loved playing baseball. And it would just seem absolutely silly if I said to you, I play baseball, but I've never actually stepped foot on a baseball field. I just like to study baseball and talk about baseball, but I've never actually stepped out on a field. You'd be like, okay, then why, why call yourself a baseball player? Just say you like baseball. Maybe sports aren't your thing. Um, let's say you say you're an electrician, but you say, I do not work with electricity. Or you're an accountant, but you say, I don't do any accounting. I just like accounting. I like to study it, but I don't do any accounting myself. Or I'm a water meter reader, but I don't read any water meters. It would seem strange to say that you are this particular thing without actually doing this particular thing. And the theme of this book, the theme of James, is that genuine faith works. There is action that comes from genuine faith. It doesn't just say that it likes these things and doesn't actually do any of them. Genuine faith, James argues, works. So, the question that we see in these verses today are what does genuine faith do with God's word? What does genuine faith do with God's word that we look at every week? What, what, if you are a Christian, if you claim to be following Christ, what do you do with God's word? And I'd submit to you that genuine faith humbly receives God's word and does what it says. Genuine faith humbly receives God's word and does what it says. So let's read this text. Again, if you're looking at the blue Bibles, it's page 111, or 1011. If you don't have a Bible, that blue one nearby, that, that's yours. You can just take it home and consider it your own. So let's read these verses, and then we will jump in. 
beginning in verse 19. This is God's perfect word. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. God, we ask that as we look at this text, we would be cut to the heart, that if there is anything keeping us from doing your word, that you would reveal that to us today, and that you would help us to be hearers and doers of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in your bulletin, you'll see that we have an outline, and there are three points there. I'm going to give them to you right now. The, the first one is characteristics of faith. Characteristics of faith. See that in verses 19 to 21. In verses 22 to 25, we see the actions of faith. In the last two verses, we see the life of faith. So characteristics, actions, and life of faith. Now, before we jump into verse 19 and start going from 19 to 21, I need to point out uh, verse 18. Because we always want to look at scripture in context. And it's easy, especially with this passage, to just pull it out of context and make all kinds of, of implications with it. Make all kinds of assumptions as to what it means. But we really have to look at verse 18 to understand what's going on after verse 18. And so look, look at me there. We read that of his own will, so of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So that word of truth is going to color the rest of this passage. And so when we read, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, that is our disposition toward that word of truth that we see in verse 18. So let's look at that. Because not only did God make us alive by the word of truth, but now he wants to shape us by the word of truth. And so, we have to ask the question, how are we supposed to approach this word of truth that we see in verse 18? And I would submit to you that there are at least four characteristics that this passage points out when it comes to the way that we are supposed to approach the word of truth. The first one, the first characteristic we see in verse 19 is that we should be quick to hear. And friends, just one of the difficulties, I'm just going to point this out, with a very practical book like James is that the application is just staring us right in the face. So I could come up with some fancy way of saying quick to hear, and I'll try to elaborate on it, but it just means be quick to hear. Just listen quickly to what God's word says. 
One commentator said it could be translated as hurry up and listen. We have kids, and anyone here who has kids or has worked with kids knows that when they are watching a show and you try to tell them to do something, they might hear you, but they're not really hearing you. Sometimes you just want to tell them, hey, hurry up and listen to me. Let's, Let's pause the show and just listen. Listen to me right now. I need you to look at me and hear what I'm saying. And the interesting thing is that we adults, we're no different than, the, than our kids in that we have access to more resources than any culture in history. And so we oftentimes don't need to be reminded that, hey, we need to listen because we are always listening to something. We have, we have more things talking to us than any other uh, culture in the history of humanity. But the question isn't whether or not we are listening. The question is oftentimes, are we listening to the right source? Are we listening to the right thing? So, as I pointed out in in verse 18, the thing that we are to listen to, and the thing that we are to be quick to listen to, is the word of truth, God's word. And so a question that could easily pop up, and I think should pop up, is how? How can we be quick to hear? So I'm going to break it down into into two categories, personally and then as a church. So personally speaking, I would encourage you to make Bible reading a priority, especially at the beginning of the year when we all want to start Bible reading plans. It's great to have a a Bible reading plan, but I would encourage you, make that a priority. Make, Make getting into God's Word a priority. You're not going to be able to hear what God has to say if you're not in God's Word. The question isn't whether or not God has spoken. The question is, are we listening to what he has said? So I encourage you, don't just just read to read. Yes, have a plan, but also have a method for the way that you read. And you can find all kinds of different Bible reading methods or Bible study methods. You can just do an easy Google search and find some that are helpful. One that, that I tend to use and appreciate is called the inductive Bible study method. How many of you in here have heard of the inductive Bible study method? Okay, a few of you. So you know that it, there's essentially three steps. Observation, interpretation, application. It's very simple. Observation, interpretation, application. So observe, ask a lot of questions about the text. As you're reading it, read it essentially with, with both eyes wide open. As if you're walking through a park and you want to see everything there is to see. As you're reading through the text, read it with both eyes wide open. Ask questions like, who is writing this? Who are they writing to? Are there certain words or phrases that keep being repeated? Are there certain things that are being said or items that are being mentioned or places? When is this taking place? Where is this in the grand story of redemption? Is this, is this old covenant where it's with Israel or maybe before Israel? Is this during Jesus' earthly ministry? Is this after that? Where is this taking, in the, taking place in the grand story of redemption? And, and ask the question, why did the author even write this story to begin with? I told you earlier the context of James. He's writing to dispersed Jewish Christians to try to encourage them to hold on to their faith and live it out. It's helpful to know that as we study the book. And so as you read your Bible, make observations and ask a lot of questions as you read. But then don't just leave it at those questions Don't just observe things without doing anything with them. Then interpret. What does this mean? And I don't mean what does this mean for you, 
I mean, what does this mean? How does this connect with the rest of Scripture? How does the Bible interpret this section of Scripture? Something that's very helpful with that is if you have a Bible with Bible references, those little numbers, not, not the verses, but little numbers or letters next to phrases in your Bible, those are extremely helpful for letting the Bible interpret the Bible and understand what does this really mean. And the last thing, apply. Just asking the simple question, how does this passage that I'm reading apply to my life today? So personally, if you want to be quick to hear, then we have to be in God's word. We have to, we have to make Bible reading a priority and not just reading to read, but reading with a method to help us better understand and apply. Now, as a church, I said go personally and then as a church, as a church, friends, it's helpful for us to just talk together about what it is that we're reading. This is one of the reasons why we encourage you to be a part of a community group. If you're a member here, it's not required that you're a part of a community group. However, we strongly encourage it because that's where we talk about God's word together. And we ask about how can we apply what we just read to our daily lives so we can actually get into some meaningful conversation about what that looks like. You could also just meet with somebody else. Maybe once a month, maybe once a week, whatever your schedule allows, but just meet with somebody else and just talk about what it is that you're reading. Talk about the Bible. I mean, shoot, go through that observation, interpretation, application with somebody else. Say, hey, let's observe what's in the text. What do you see here? What do you see here? What does this mean? How can we apply it? How how do you apply it at your job? How do you apply it in your context? How can I apply it? Just go through that OIA, observation, interpretation, application with, with a friend. I would also encourage you that when we gather here on Sundays, pay close attention to the scripture readings and to the prayers. These are used intentionally to help form you into the image of Christ. We, we try to keep God's word at the center of what it is that we are doing, not because we think that that's the best way to get people in the seats, but because we think that's the best thing for your souls and your discipleship. Pay close attention to the scripture readings and to the prayers. And friends, get as much out of the sermon as you can. We give, we give you a notes section so that you can get more out of the sermon. And look, we, we love the sound of kids. We encourage you, have your kids in here. But if you need to, utilize the nursery. You don't have to feel bad about that. I promise you, friends, that you'll be a better parent if you are able to absorb God's word with the rest of the church. So the first characteristic that we see there is the characteristic of listening. The second characteristic in this first section, and just forewarning, this first section is going to be our longest one. The section two and three, they're going to be a little bit shorter. This first one's going to be our longest. The second characteristic that we see is being slow to speak. Now, this, this touches on our own proclivity to impose what we think onto the Bible, impose our own thoughts onto the Bible rather than letting God expose to us what is true and what it is that we really do need. And look, as, as creatures that are, that are made in God's image, we like to speak. God has spoken. He's given us his word. He created by speaking. We made in his image, we like to speak. You may be an introvert, you may be an extrovert. Either way, you like to speak. It might not be with other people, but you like to think about what it is that you believe and try to articulate that. You like to try to understand. 
How many here, just to illustrate this point, how many here um, were aware, how many here are aware that social media began its inception, so it's agreed that the first social media platform was made in the year 1996? Okay, does anybody, and this is, this is legit, if you know it, you can actually shout it back at me. Does anybody know the name of that social media network? MySpace. No, MySpace is what I would have thought. However, it's called, it was called Six Degrees. Six Degrees. Does anybody have a Six Degrees account? Okay, I didn't think so. <laughs> I think the website is still up, so you can actually go see it, but I'm not sure you can actually create an account. However, the first social media platform was made in 1996. Now, by 2005, so just nine years later, 5% of Americans, American adults, used some form of social media, so be it Six Degrees or MySpace or something else. By 2011, 50% of American adults used social media, and by 2021, 72% of American adults used social media, and by 2023, so just last year, the most recent figure was that 4.95 billion people worldwide were actively using social media. And so this thing went from zero in 1995 to 4.95 billion, over half of the world's population, by the year 2023. So why the ever-growing popularity? Well, at least one reason we can point out is because we like to talk about our thoughts, about our ideas, about our opinions, and about our experiences with others. Now, prior to social media... That would typically take place at a social event. And then if your ideas or your experiences or your thoughts had enough interest, then maybe you'd get published. Be it by a newspaper or a journal or a publisher, get a book deal, or maybe you'd be brought on to a, an established radio program or television program. But now, anyone can broadcast their ideas and experiences and thoughts from virtually anywhere whether that's social media or podcasts or blogs or chats, whatever it is, we have the opportunity to just broadcast our thoughts and it has gained steam like nothing else since it was first invented in 1996. And look, those things aren't necessarily bad, but it just illustrates the point that we do like to, to share with others what our thoughts are. We like to exchange ideas. We like to share with others what our experiences were, what we think. And we feed off the affirmation of others who like what we have to say. Hence the like button. But friends, I say all that to say that when it comes to the Bible, God is not inviting us to exchange ideas. He's not inviting us to, hey, here's what I've said. Now, what do you say about what you think truth is? That's not what's happening. God says, be slow to speak. He's inviting us to hear his word. And we won't truly hear his word unless we stop talking. And that's difficult for people who like to talk. I wonder, do you, friend, approach the Bible, approach God's word to be shaped into his image, or do you approach it to shape God into your own image? Are you approaching it to impose what you believe, 
to say what it is you believe about what Scripture should mean? Or do you want God to expose to you what is true? Third thing, the third characteristic of genuine faith is that we are to be slow to anger. Now, this isn't referring to all anger. Uh, Ephesians 4.26 says to be angry and do not sin. So that implies that one can be angry without actually sinning. But it is referring to a certain kind of anger, the kind of anger that we see in verse 20, where we see the anger of man, the kind of anger that arises from ourselves, not from the Spirit. And look, if we approach the word of truth that we see in verse 18, if we approach that being quick to anger, we're going to find plenty to be angry about. Look, we're fallen creatures. We naturally are rebellious against God. And so if we come to his word and we're quick to anger, we're going to find plenty to be angry about. But if we're reading and considering the word the way we're called to, it will challenge us. And that's a good thing. If Scripture never challenges you, then perhaps you are reading it and trying to shape it into your own image and impose your own ideas onto it because you just consistently find yourself agreeing with everything that it says. If you are reading God's Word and you're being slow to speak, you're being quick to listen, and you're being slow to anger, then it's going to challenge you. But if we're quick to anger every time we're challenged then as the text says, that won't produce the righteousness of God. It won't lead us to faithful obedience. So you can see why God would say, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. It's because those things equip us to receive God's word, which just paves the way for that fourth characteristic that we see here. And that fourth one is humility. So these characteristics listed in verses 19 and 20, they act as the basis for what's laid out in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Therefore, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There are two commands here. The command to put away and the command to receive. Put away filthiness, rampant wickedness. Put away sin and receive the implanted word. Receive the word of truth. And look, God's word, this idea of God's word being implanted in his people, that was foretold by the prophet Jeremiah over 600 years prior to this being written. In Jeremiah 31, if you're turning there, it's Jeremiah 31, verse 33. The prophet says, for this is the new covenant. He's speaking about the new covenant that's going to happen. For this is the covenant that I will make with those of the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, or I'll put my instruction within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Look, friends, James is saying that we cannot hold on to our sin and receive God's word. We can't hold on to our sin and receive God's word. We can't hold on to the sin and still be saved from our sin. And so the question that may pop up is, so does that mean that we need to clean ourselves up first in order for us to be saved? He says right there, put away all filthiness and wickedness and receive with me the implanted word, which is able 
to save your souls. So does that mean that we need to clean ourselves up before we're saved? No, it doesn't mean that. Remember, James, if you look at verse 2 and verse 19, James is writing to brothers. And he's not just saying brother as the, the nice casual way of saying hello to the guy that he meets on the street. He's talking about brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters who are calling on the name of Jesus. And when he's talking to them and telling them to remove rampant wickedness, to remove sin and receive the word, he's saying you've already received Christ, but you need to continue to remove sin from your life and receive God's word. This is an ongoing process. It's not done right when you become a Christian. You need to continue to work at it. So Christian, if you've been feeling spiritually stuck, stuck in neutral, perhaps the problem isn't that you're not reading enough or you're not studying enough or praying enough or going to church enough or serving enough. Maybe that's not the problem. Maybe the problem is that you're not fighting against sin enough. Maybe you're not purging sin enough. So in the word of truth speaks, and it speaks to that particular sin that you've been unwilling to kind of let go, to purge, to get rid of. When the word of truth speaks, and you're unwilling to remove that sin, then there's no room for that word of truth to be implanted into your heart, because you haven't made room for it. We need to identify sins that we're prone to hold on to, and we need to actively work to remove them. So friends, we are called to humbly receive God's word, and when we do that, it saves our souls. Jesus, as John 1.14 says, is the Word made flesh. Jesus, who is the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, or verse 14 in, in John 1, says that the Word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. So we can take those four characteristics of how we approach the Word and just then transfer them to how do we approach Jesus? Are we quick to hear the message of Jesus, that he's the son of God sent into the world to save sinners? Are we slow to speak, not arrogantly insisting on our own ideas of salvation, but hearing God's way? Are we slow to anger? So when, we're, when we hear that we've rebelled against God, that we are sinners in need of a savior, that we are sinners deserving of God's punishment, do we get angry about that? When we hear that we're incapable of saving ourselves and that we need someone outside of ourselves to deliver us, does that anger us or are we slow to anger? Are we humble, letting go of our own ways of salvation and trusting God's way, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh? Genuine faith has characteristics, but genuine faith also has actions. We see that in our second point, the actions of faith. So after receiving the word, after approaching the word with those four characteristics, after being slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to hear, being humble to, to put away sin and to receive the word, after receiving it, then those who have genuine faith, they do the word. Look at verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer and there's a hearer of the word and not a doer. He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
And so friends, the one who hears God's word but doesn't live according to it, that person may think that he's a Christian, but James says he's actually deceived. He is wrong in what he is thinking. And this is a sober warning for all of us, myself included. Because you can attend church or community groups or Bible studies, prayer meetings. You can listen to sermons every day of the week. You can read all the best Christian books and commentaries. And you can intake all the best material on doctrine regarding the Christian life. And even doing all of those things, reading, listening, intaking, even doing all of those things, you can still be dead in your sin. The mark of a Christian is that he or she hears God's word and then tries to live it out and does what it says. No, I just want to put it out there. No, we, we do not do that perfectly. No one has. Only, only one person has. His name is Jesus Christ. But friends, we try. We try to hear what God says and to live faithfully in light of it. We look at God's perfect word and we orient our lives around that. And look, we don't just read or hear it. We don't just study it. We don't just talk about it. But we try to live it out. And I just want to speak to those who feel like they aren't doing enough. Maybe because in a room this size, there's going to be those who need to be spurred, like this text does, to spur us on, not to just study, not just know, but to actually do. But then there's going to be those over here who are trying to do, 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 and they just feel condemned because they consistently feel like they have not done enough. They are trying to live faithfully, and they consistently fall short of it. Whichever camp you are in, I would encourage you to look at Christ, especially if you're over here, and you think, I keep falling short. I want to do, but I keep doing it imperfectly, and it's frustrating. I would encourage you. I want to gently remind you that you are not doing enough. That sense of conviction that you feel, it's accurate. You are not doing enough, and you will never be able to do enough. But I want to encourage you to take that, that conviction that you're feeling, and every time you feel it, let it be a reminder that someone else has to do this for you. That you are desperately in need of someone to do it for you. Because despite your greatest efforts, you will never amount to the amount required to make yourself justified before God. Only one has. Jesus Christ, who came into the world, and he lived that perfect life that we are called to live. And so when you feel convicted about not doing enough, be reminded that Jesus has done enough. It is finished. He cried that out on the cross. He meant it. It is finished. Continue to try to live out God's word. We must. If, you don't, if you're not trying to do that, then you're deceived. However, when you get discouraged... If you get discouraged for not doing enough, then friends, use that as an opportunity not to look at yourself, but to look at Christ. After humbly receiving the implanted word, genuine faith seeks to live according to it, and we will all fall short of that. However, we do have a Savior who did perfectly live that out. He heard God's word, he was quick to hear, and he perfectly lived it out. 
And after living that perfect life, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Then he sent his Holy Spirit to help us walk in holiness. So if you feel like you're falling short, look to Christ and then call out asking for help from the Holy Spirit. He is your helper. Meet with other Christians to talk about these things. God kindly gives us means to accomplish these things that he's commanded us. Talk with other Christians about what it means to live this out. Third, we see the life of faith. And so now, there are three characteristics of those with genuine faith. And we see this in verses 26 through 27. So let's look at this. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So the first characteristic of a life of faith is that the person controls their speech. Characteristic number one is controlling their speech. Now that term religious, we we hear religious and we might initially think bad because we think of robes and we think of works to justify us. But when James is using the word religious, he's not referring to that. He's referring to true religion, genuine Christianity. That is true religion, friends. Don't be afraid of the word religion or religious. We want true religion. True religion is what James is after here. Not false religion. Not the facade of religion. And he says that those who are living in true religion, they bridle their tongue. He says that if someone does not bridle his tongue, his heart is deceived and his religion is worthless. So that term bridle, so I I grew up on a hobby farm. And so we had dogs, cats, chickens, sheep. We had llamas. We had horses and we had miniature horses. Not ponies like the fun thing, but like miniature horses that nobody can ride on and you just feed them. And my mom, she, she loved horses. And occasionally she would get us to ride horses with her. And part of getting the horse ready was after you got the, the mat on, the saddle, you would put on this thing called a bridle. And the bridle was basically the piece that goes over the face that the reins attached to. And the bridle is what allowed you to control this massive beast that you were about to ride. Without the bridle, you're not going to control this animal. And James is saying that when it comes to our tongue, and he elaborates more on this in chapter 3 where he really gets into it, and so we'll talk more about it as we continue on in the James series. But James says that when it comes to the tongue, we are to bridle it. We're to control it. It naturally wants to go its own way. But the person who is living in faith is going to bridle their tongue. They're going to keep it under control. It's going to direct his speech where it should go rather than where we may naturally want it to go. And friends, this is done two ways. This is done with quality and with quantity. We bridle our tongue with, when it comes to the quality of our speech and the quantity of our speech. So quality is just how we use our speech. Scripture talks about this all over the place, but I'll give you one verse. Ephesians 4.29, where Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But, here's the kind of talk that should come out. He says, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So friends, do your words build up? Do they give grace 
Or do they divide and tear down? Or do you, when you're speaking with others, do you, do you slip phrases in? Just real quick, maybe they didn't catch it, but you're slipping phrases in to kind of stir questions in the person that you're talking to. Maybe they'll ask me a question about that. I'll just slip that in real quick. I won't say it directly, but I'll slip it in there. Maybe it's not the actual words you're using, but maybe it's the way you're saying them. I don't mean to be the tone police, but our tone and our inflection, the way we say things, it does matter. Is the way that you are speaking, is it good for building up? Does it give grace to those who hear? Are we putting a bridle over our tongue? And look, each of those things have to do with controlling our speech. But the other area is quantity, the amount we're speaking. And if you just read through the Proverbs, you're going to find all kinds of Proverbs talking about how it's wiser to speak less. Say that where, there, where words are many, transgression is there. And so look, there are times when it's just easier to talk about true religion than to actually live it out. And what James is getting at here, he's saying that there are times when we just need to stop talking and start doing. We need to stop talking sometimes and start doing. So in addition to controlling their tongue, that first uh, mark of the life of faith, we control our tongue, but we also, number two, we care for the vulnerable. Look at verse 27. So James just talked about some things that true living faith have. Part of that is bridling the tongue. And then he says, look, if you really want to know what the life of faith looks like, it's right here. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. He says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We'll stop there. But he says, widows and orphans, friends, we have to understand, widows and orphans, they were the most vulnerable in that society. They did not have anybody to provide for them. They didn't have anybody to protect them, which let them susceptible to being taken advantage of in their society. And James is saying, look, you Christians, you who are trying to live out this faith, you who have received the implanted word and are trying to live faithfully and according to it, here's what it looks like to do that, to care for the vulnerable. You were once vulnerable, but God has provided for you a Savior. He has protected you from his wrath. And so if God has cared for you as being one who is vulnerable, how much more so should we then care for those around us who are vulnerable? God had no obligation to care for us, but in his kindness and his love and his mercy, he did. And so now that we have received that, we now do have an obligation to care for the vulnerable that are around us. Those living a life of faith, they not only control their tongue, but they also care for the vulnerable. And third, they remain unstained from the world. So he says to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And that's just a, a, a fancy way of saying pursue godliness. Pursue holiness. What does it mean to keep oneself unstained from the world? It, it could very easily, if you, if you read this and you tell somebody, hey, look, I'm just trying to keep myself unstained from the world. That could sound a little bit self-righteous and a little bit pretentious. Like, I get it. However, to keep oneself unstained from the world does not mean to retreat and to isolate and to never engage with non-believers. But what it does mean is that as we engage with non-believers, we keep a careful watch over ourselves to ensure 
that we do not begin to look like non-believers. That we have a larger influence on them than they have on us. Which is especially true just, just in evangelicalism today. That we see churches who have, who have good intentions of trying to get the gospel out to the world, to get the gospel to as many people as possible. They try to reach the world with the gospel, but they end up looking more like the world. Too often, in our attempt to reach non-Christians with the gospel, we end up looking and living like non-Christians. And if you're worried about coming across as self-righteous, then just remember this. It's not self-righteous to do what God says. That's, friends, that's humility and faithfulness. But it is self-righteous to think that your doing is what makes you righteous. Do you see that distinction? Does that make sense? It's not self-righteous to do what God says. That's just faithfulness and that's humility. That's recognizing, God, I, I don't know the best way. I'm going to submit myself to you. I'm going to humbly receive what you have said, and I'm going to try to live faithfully in light of it. That's not self-righteous. It is self-righteous to think that by doing those things, you are made righteous. Our righteousness doesn't come from ourselves. Our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. And so as we pursue to live like Christ, as we pursue holiness and godliness, we are recognizing every step of the way that I am unrighteous. My righteousness comes from Christ. I wear his righteousness like a robe. That's the only reason God sees me as righteous and holy. I still pursue holiness and righteousness because he's changed me and desire those things, but I'm not trusting in my work to be seen by God as righteous. I'm trusting in Christ's finished work. Doers of the word control their speech, they care for the vulnerable, and they pursue holiness. And as we go through this book, James is going to consistently unpack what it looks like for us to work out our faith. And I just need to, to reiterate, I'm going to have to reiterate this multiple times as we go through the book of James, that true saving faith will work. Saving faith will work. But it is, our work is from the root. The root is Christ, and then comes our works. Thomas Wilson I quoted last week, said, faith is the root of works. A root that produces nothing is dead. So genuine faith humbly receives God's word and does what it says. So when it comes to God's word, friends, as you go about your week this week, when it comes to doing your Bible reading, when it comes to talking with others, when it comes to considering what God has said, I would encourage you, be quick to hear. Be quick to hear what God says. Be slow to impose your own thoughts on it. Be slow to speak. Be slow to get angry at what it says. This book will challenge us. If it doesn't challenge us, then we might be reading it wrong. It will challenge us. Put away sin and make room to receive the implanted word, which, friends, is able to save your souls. God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the word made flesh, and if you receive him, you will be saved. Our salvation does not come from us working. It comes from trusting in the one who has worked on our behalf. Trusting in Jesus Christ to take away all of our sin, to pay for it all on the cross, and then to freely give us his righteousness. Don't just hear about Jesus today. Don't just study the word. Do what it says. Bridle your tongue. Care for the vulnerable. Pursue godliness. 
And if something is keeping you from receiving God's word, something is keeping you from living out God's word, I would encourage you to surrender that thing to him. And friends, enjoy the true freedom that comes from a life fully surrendered to God. Getting ready to sing, I surrender all. There are two verses in there. We read, all to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. All to Jesus I surrender. Now I feel the sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation. Glory, glory to his name. Let that be your response today. As you approach God's word this week, let that be your response to God. I surrender all. I will hear what you have to say. I will, I will live out what you are telling me to do. I will surrender my sin so that I may receive your word, and I will trust that my righteousness does not come from the works that I'm doing, but it comes from Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Help us. Help us to hear it. Help us to receive it. Help us to live it out. By your spirit, help us to put away sin and receive what you have said in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.